As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. Well, what else could we talk about today but the second lockdown, which started here in the UK on the 5th of November and is due to last at least the rest of this month? Unlike the first time round in the spring, we aren't going into this with our eyes closed. We know the lockdown will cause immense economic damage, as well as impacting mental and even physical health. Is this crude, blunt instrument really the best way to tackle the second wave of the COVID pandemic? What does the Christian ethic have to say about how to balance the competing goods of saving lives versus protecting livelihoods? Is there actually any alternative? I'm going to call up my dad, John Wyatt, just now to try and tease out some answers over the next 40 minutes or so. I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome again, John. Thanks for for dialing in. Um, today, we wanted to talk about the the second lockdown that we've been sadly plunged into here in the UK uh, last week. It's due to last another month, um, very similar to the first one, with a few differences in the restrictions. But we wanted to tackle an issue which has come up much more this time, second time round than last time, which is is the lockdown actually the best, most ethical? way to tackle the coronavirus pandemic and the second wave that we're currently experiencing. Um, there's been quite a lot of debate, I don't know if you've seen it both in politics but also within the church and society in general about people who um, are much more aware of the social cost, the economic cost, even the health cost of of locking everyone down and telling everyone to stay at home. Um, and there's increasing claims by a lot of people that actually the kind of the cure is worse than the disease and that potentially the lockdown rather than a a, a kind of terrible necessity is actually going to cause more damage than if we actually pursued a kind of different less intrusive approach to tackle uh, covid yeah i i'm very well aware of of these debates and i think they're raising a very important questions which we do need to think about hard Uh, i think straight away i'd want to draw a distinction between um rich western countries of which we have the privilege of belonging to one uh, compared with low resource countries um, I, I think there's already quite a lot of evidence that the lockdown that was carried out earlier on in the pandemic uh, particularly in, in in poor African countries uh, had a devastating effect on the local economy and has has increased rates of of poverty extreme poverty and hardship um, whereas it in retrospect, it turned out that um, the the risks of mortality from um, 
the coronavirus were actually much less. And so the tragedy is that many more children, for instance, are going to die of conditions like malaria and and, and other infective diseases uh, because of all the consequences of the lockdown and because of um, hunger and malnutrition and unemployment and all the rest um, than uh, die because of coronavirus. So I, I think... The arguments are undoubtedly, the balance of risks are undoubtedly different depending on the, the, the degree of development and the uh, resources of the country in question. Hmm. And even in this country, there's a well-established literature long predating COVID that, sh- that associates economic recessions, downturns, unemployment, crises like that with, with public health. Um, for example, I, I found one study looking at the 2008 financial crisis which was obviously significantly less devastating uh, than than the lockdown was earlier this year and that suggested that a, even a one percent fall in employment was associated with a two percent rise in chronic illness and, and this is most affected um, vulnerable populations such as pregnant mothers families with young children and, and low-income groups yeah and and this is the awful tragedy of, of what is going on in our midst you know that that um the 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 direct health implications of being infected by this virus and all its long-term consequences and the indirect effects that covid is having in all sorts of ways which and we'll explore that a bit more i think in the podcast um the these two are inextricably intertwined and i, I think you know when historians come to write this uh, this period of of world history um they will point out um, the devastating and long-lasting consequences that um, the pandemic has had, and, and in particular the, the economic downturn, the unemployment, the and, and all kinds of other tragic things that are going on. So, for instance, paediatricians have become aware that uh, there is a very high-risk group of, of children at, in the lockdown, and these are babies between zero and, and one and and the evidence is is that these the the rate of non-accidental injury of abuse of neglect in that age group in young babies has risen very significantly uh, just over the last uh, since the since the lockdown started and and the reason for this is quite interesting and that is that once a child starts going to kindergarten um they're under uh, there are other people who are watching and who will notice and, and will pick up problems. But during the lockdown, uh, when you have a baby, um, the, the, the level of monitoring is almost non-existent. And, and sadly, a significant number of babies are coming to harm. I guess put bluntly as I said in the intro is the cure worse than the disease do do you think that actually pursuing a lockdown given the increasing evidence we have of the kind of devastation it causes to society it would actually be better to try and take our chances with with the coronavirus and it's a very important question but let me just take a a sort of an extreme analogy and it's 1939 and War has been declared and we're watching what Hitler is doing and how he's moving across um, across Europe. And people are saying, you know, should we really be devastating our economy by, um, you know, making spitfires and, 
and we're doing terrible things. We're we're stopping all the normal retail. We're stopping people having holidays. You know, we're devastating our economy for this warfare. You know, we shouldn't we? Wouldn't it be better to just let it happen, and and focus on the economy? And of course, we there weren't those voices. Uh, well, these I suspect that there may have been a few, but they weren't because everybody knew that there was a quote existential threat to the country, and. Um, that that therefore, unless this existential threat, everything was thrown at it, uh, the economy was all, was also going to be devastated, uh, and what's more, we would be taken over. Now that's an extreme analogy, but I think it has an element of truth in it. You know, I think arguably what is what UK and Europe is facing at the moment is the biggest threat since the Second World War. It's the biggest threat to their. Um, to their continued uh, prosperity and uh, safety and, and all the rest, um, because if if all the evidence is that if we were to let this virus quote run rib, as in the way that flu a pandemic occurs every every winter. Um, the consequences would be absolutely devastating. And, and, and I think it's helpful perhaps just to unpick a bit why that is. But I mean, push back on me if you like. Do you, do you see the force of the analogy? I think the analogy is, is, is powerful. I guess where people might disagree is, is, is they would say Nazism and Hitler was an existential threat to the UK, you know, and the choice really facing the country in 39 was we either, as you say, turn onto a war footing with all the devastation that causes the rationing, the evacuation of children, you know, the, the in- forcibly conscripting millions of people into, uh, into the armed forces. Yeah, enormously disruptive, ruining people's lives. Managers. Or if we don't do that, we effectively become, at, at best, a kind of client state of a fascist regime, or at worst, we get invaded and occupied with all the... And, and and it was a kind of balancing the risk. I guess the challenge is we don't really know if if COVID is going to to be as des- as destructive as a as a Nazi invasion would be. And I think a lot of people say that there it's only going to be that destructive to to a small vulnerable group. So for example, I don't know if you've come across something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which was a kind of statement of opposition offering an alternative approach to COVID organised by a free market libertarian think tank in America. And they gathered some, you know, some significant and credible epidemiologists from places like Oxford, Stanford University, Harvard, um, not cranks, but the imagination, but outside the mainstream, who argue that actually, if we just focus on protecting the high risk group, so that's your over 70s, people who were immunocompromised, shielding those and let everyone else the people like me in their 30s with no underlying health conditions get on with their lives, that would actually be a much better balance of risks between the risks of COVID and the risks of um, of lockdowns. What, what, what do you make of that? Well, again, I mean, you can see, you can see the, the superficially that sounds quite attractive. You know, just, just protect those at the greatest risk and then let everybody else live their lives normally but i think the vast majority of of medics and public health specialists and so on believe that that is just completely unrealistic and, and it fails to grasp the centrality of healthcare 
in a modern economy. Um, you know, I was just reflecting that the last lethal pandemic that spread across the world, you know, the, the closest analogy is the the Spanish flu pandemic at the end of the First World War, 1918, 1919. And of course, at that point in time, medical services were still incredibly basic and underdeveloped. I mean, not only was there nothing you could do for flu, there was nothing you could do for the vast majority of the diseases and ailments and, and conditions and so on. And, and that this is the first global lethal pandemic to occur in societies in which a highly sophisticated healthcare system is at the very core of society's functioning. I think most of the time we're, we're not aware of how utterly central healthcare has become to the way that a modern society functions, just because most of the time it works. Of course, there are scandals about waiting times in in um, in A and E, but 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 we are confident, basically, at, here in the UK. Of course, we have the privilege of the NHS, but it's true across the world, the the rich world generally. We are confident that whatever medical condition that we might develop in our lives there is a whole sophisticated apparatus that is going to wade in to to counter that and to allow us to get on with our lives. And what's happening now, of course, is as people grow older, is that the number of chronic conditions that people are living with is increasing. So, you know, by the time you get into your 60s, like me, most people have two or three chronic medical conditions for which they are receiving treatment, review, uh, advice, and so on. And that increases as you get older so i mean if you would just imagine what would happen as this uh, virus infection increases i mean interestingly the closest example of what of what might happen we're already seeing in the usa you know which is which is at the time of recording this has now got to 120,000 cases a year and is is on a very steep rise uh, sorry 120,000 cases a day and is and is on a continuing rise. And so, um, you know, what happens as medical systems get overwhelmed? Um, yeah, we got a, we got a, some hint of that, didn't we, in, in, the first, in the first pandemic? I mean, thankfully, it never happened, but it could have done. Um, I think something which most people don't understand, for instance, is how absolutely central to a hospital healthcare is the intensive care unit. Um, the intensive care unit is a kind of support for most of the activities of a modern hospital. So, for instance, um, a lot of surgery, significant surgery, which is routine surgery, which is going on, emergency surgery, elective surgery, uh, depends on the existence of an intensive care unit for the recovery of patients after surgery. Um, Sometimes that's planned, sometimes that only occurs when there's complications. But it's simply not possible to carry out hip replacements, major heart surgery, brain surgery, uh, you name it, major surgery, without uh, having available an intensive care unit. And surgeons just refuse to put their patient at risk by doing the operation if the intensive care unit isn't available. And, and it, there have to be spaces, there have to be nurses and staff and equipment to take the patient. So if our intensive care units get filled up with patients with COVID, um, it is simply not possible to do most of the activities. That means, 
you know, just imagine there's no cancer surgery going on for months or years. There's no heart surgery. There's no brain surgery. Uh, if you have a major trauma road accident, we're not at all confident that we'll be able to get you into an ITU. Um, and, and, and your chronic condition, the diabetes, you know, the eye disease that's being monitored. I'm sorry, you know, these are not available. We're all, it's all hands on deck trying to fight COVID. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, the knock-on implications for how people live their lives, for employment, for education, for and, and so on, are almost inconceivable. I, th- I think this is where most medics and public health specialists think that you know people haven't really they don't they don't understand how utterly central uh, a healthcare system is to to modern society. So to put it in simple terms, what you're basically saying is if we do pursue this kind of herd immunity, hands-off, non-lockdown approach and let the virus virus rip through populations, if people are prepared to go outside without masks and everything else, let it happen, what actually happens is a, an effective collapse of our healthcare system, which would be significantly more destructive to our way of life and our flourishing than any lockdown. Yes, and, and another factor in this kind of apocalyptic scenario is the fact that, um, of course, people who get COVID don't just either die or get better. You know, we know with all conditions that there's a kind of penumbra between healthy survival and death, which is disabled survival. You you survive, but you have a, a chronic health condition. And there's already now evidence you know, steadily accumulating that a significant uh, minority of even quite young, healthy people who've uh, developed COVID infection turn out to have very long-lasting, debilitating effects. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was just on the BBC website, there was a, a BBC journalist, I think, um, a, a young mother in her 30s and 40s who got COVID early on in the pandemic, and she's describing what it's like six months later, and her life is completely... Um, devastated by it she's not able to work she can hardly live her life she's got multiple symptoms and just imagine if thousands and thousands of people across our society young healthy people are debilitated like that and and requiring constant medical support and care uh, and able to contribute economically but but also all the knock-on effects of having all these new disabled people in our society I mean, as you say, quite aside from the horrendous impact on the individuals concerned, can you the economic impact of hundreds of thousands of people who are now effectively disabled or suffering with chronic fatigue and are unable to work is 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 unimaginable as well. Um, I mean, I one line stood out. For, I read that piece by the journalist on the BBC website, and you know, she said before she caught COVID, she was incredibly active. She would go on a cycle ride every single day, and now she's so debilitated she can't even unload the wash the, dish, the washing machine the dishwasher in a single go she has to do one one of the the trays and then she has to go and lie down for a bit before she can come back and unload the second tray yeah, absolutely and and you know this is this is not unusual i mean we know that quite a lot of people who've who've um had covid have permanent changes on their x-ray in other words there's been uh a, a permanent 
fibrotic inflammatory changes within in the lungs nobody knows what the consequences might be but it's certainly possible that in you know we're breeding a generation of people who will rather like with asbestosis or with pneumoconiosis which is what coal miners got exposure to coal dust that you you start to see um, people who have chronic respiratory problems uh, which is going to be lifelong and which only a lung transplant is going to solve how how would you respond to people then from coming from a different angle, looking at the kind of ethics and the the Christ, Christian kind of side of this? You say, "Hang on, Christianity has never simply been a religion which says that we must pre- preserve life at any cost. You know that 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 life is always worth living in any instance, and that we must do absolutely everything we can at any cost to serve, preserve life. That's unChristian. That's vitalism. Are lockdowns an example of vitalism? Do you think?" Well, I think the fundamental point is quite right. Uh, Christian ethics has never put life and survival as being the supreme good. It's always regarded it as a very great good. Life is precious. Life is to be protected wherever possible. But it's not the supreme good. And in fact, you know, all the way back to Jesus, who says, greater love has no person than this. And they lay down their life for their friends and who then goes to the cross in order to demonstrate that. Um, self-sacrifice self has been voluntary chosen self-sacrifice has been the highest calling of, of following Christ and so I, I think it's just interesting to, to speculate as a thought experiment um, would it be possible to promote a kind of uh, an, an attitude of self-sacrifice amongst older people particularly older christian people um and i i think i mean it's a, it's a it's at least worth considering that possibility um i suppose the first and most important thing i would want to say is that self-sacrifice is always voluntary in christian thinking it is never coerced it is never manipulated it is never we don't think your life is worth living uh, it has to be, I voluntarily choose to forego my right to health care in order, in order to, um, to help somebody else. Um, but, you know, as you follow the thought experiment, it becomes pretty hard to see how that might actually work in practice. You know, I suppose I can certainly see, suppose there's somebody in their 80s, they have multiple pathologies, and then they're diagnosed with um, with COVID. Uh, would you like to go into hospital, or would you like to be just kept comfortable here at home, recognizing there's a greater risk you might die? I think many Christian people would say, you know, I've had my life. I don't want to cause uh, difficulties. I, I would like to be cared for at home. Um, so, so, and I, and I think that's actually happened already, and will continue to happen. Um, what about somebody like me in their late 60s? You know, I certainly have an increased risk of um, of death if I, I don't receive treatment. But, but on the other hand, uh, if I don't receive treatment, there's quite a chance I might survive with brain damage, with chronic respiratory problems, with uh, renal failure. Um, and, and as a result, I, I could create more... Um, Requ- care requirements and, and cause greater issues for 
for my family and for the country because I refuse to have care. So these are very complex, difficult uh, balancing decisions. Um, but I think it's important to have this discussion. I think it's important to have this discussion among Christians. You know, each one of us need to think carefully, you know, how would I respond if I, if I knew I was infected and, and what's the kind of discussion I would be having with the carers? I mean, let's, let's bring this to a very uh, on-the-nose discussion then. D- does Do the lives of the young count more in God's eyes than the lives of the old? And to, to be blunt, I'm in my early 30s. I'm young and healthy and COVID is very low risk to me. Do you feel guilty that we're effectively locking down, ruining my livelihood as a young person to protect old people like you? <laughs> well, this is getting very pointed, isn't it, Tim? Um, so I think... The the answer to the first question, do the lives of young people matter more than matter of old people? I think that the the Christian answer I would want to give is it's a meaningless question. In in Christian thinking, every life is, to use a long word, incommensurable. It's a bit like saying, is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony more valuable than the roof of the Sistine Chapel? And and the answer is, well, you just can't compare them. They're both unique masterpieces. And, and their value, it's incommensurable. And in the same way, I think the Christian, uh, the Orthodox Christian view says every human life is a masterpiece. It's a unique and precious masterpiece and it can't be valued against other people. As you probably know, um, the government has uh, explicitly set up a, a way of valuing lives when it comes to healthcare and, and other interventions as well. Uh, and, and, and perhaps you know, there's no alternative to that to have to put some kind of financial value on a life. Um, what Nice uses is is something called a quality adjusted life year, which is it calculates how many life years the treatment is likely to uh, is likely to add to your life, and then it makes an adjustment between multiplies them between naught or one, depending on the quotes quality close quotes of the life that is saved. And so, uh, in theory, should we give intensive care to somebody who's seventy? Um, with no pre-morbid conditions. Well, the intensive care is going to cost, say, £50,000, but on average, uh, for a 70-year-old, intensive care is going to buy, say, 15 quality-adjusted life years, maybe 10 quality-adjusted life years. In that case, it's worth it, because by the sort of calculation which is normally done on quality-adjusted life years, you get more bang for your buck than... um, so, so yes, we should do intensive care in that. So that's the kind of crude economic calculation. Now, in reality, doctors don't do that crude economic calculation. They, they, they uh, work out in non-quantitative terms, by and large, taking individualizing each patient and saying, you know, is is intensive care going to benefit this person or not? Um, but there, underlying it, there are the these crude economic calculations. We should just clarify quickly that NICE is the um, National Institute for Clinical and Healthcare Excellence, which is the kind of um, 
NHS body, which... In fact, no, it's actually not part of the NHS, is it? It's the government body which basically determines how much money the NHS is allowed to spend on various treatments and and, and they're the ones who are assessing and, and trying to figure out whether, for example, a new cancer treatment is is, is going to become available on, on the taxpayer's dime on the NHS or whether actually it's too expensive for the, for the, um, the amount of extra time it might give you. Yes, and it has to say the UK is very unusual in that it's been entirely explicit about how these decisions are made. Most countries... Most politicians, you know, obfuscate these decisions and refuse to acknowledge the way that rationing is is taking place, and and, um, and yet some degree of healthcare rationing uh, is happening pretty well everywhere. I mean, of course, in the states, in a, in a very privatized system, it is possible for you if you're wealthy to buy your intensive care, despite the fact that everybody says it's a waste of time. Um, but in most health systems across the world, governments are making these rationing. Uh, decisions. Um, so I, I suppose the question comes then, you know, it comes back to, to the young people. And, and, and I think I would want to say the reality, of course, is that in a highly integrated and sophisticated society like ours, old people by and large aren't, aren't there in a sort of isolation. They are very much part of, of the family. So, you know, just suppose... Uh, I end up chronically disabled because I've refused to um, to have any treatment for COVID. You know, is the rest of the family, the children, the grandchildren, everyone, just going to say, "Well, you know, just leave Dad." You know, he's, he's gasping there alone. I mean, you know, inevitably, I hope um, <laughs> young young people will say, "Well, he is our Dad after all." I suppose we'd we'll have to try and bail him out you know so 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 because of the responsibilities of children you know and this of course is a very christian thing you know that that um the vulnerable the dependent um we care for them and uh in 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 countries which have been strongly influenced by the christian ethic but but are pre-scientific elderly people are not left and abandoned quite the reverse elderly people are celebrated and and cared for, and revered. Are you listening, Tim? Old, older <laughs> parents are revered by I'm the youngsters. I'm taking notes. <laughs> so, so I, I, I think it, it's much more a secular utilitarian ethic, you know, which actually you can see in the pagan world, which basically says these lives are not worth living, and and will abandon them to their fate. Actually, that last point ties in really neatly with what I was going to say, which is um, there's a lot of overlap here with the debate around assisted dying and and euthanasia uh, and a Christian ethic, which, for example, encouraged the elderly to sacrifice themselves because their young relatives will, will lives will work more more worth living, is really undermining Christian ability, the kind of Christian uh, um, opposition to euthanasia, because a, a large part of the argument, often unsaid in favour of euthanasia is that really we need to be bumping off the elderly to kind of reduce the drain on the taxpayer and the burden that their younger children will will, will have to pay. Yeah, and I think I've made this comment before in a podcast, isn't it? It's, it's interesting that therefore you would have thought, because those arguments have been very current, 
before the pandemic, you would have thought that once coronavirus comes along, you know, it will be a lot of people would say, well, yippee, you know, coronavirus is, is really doing, it's getting rid of the, the dead wood, the elderly people with multiple disabilities. And by and large, that's a great thing. What was fascinating to me is certainly in the early days of the pandemic, and still I think now, there is very little of that kind of discussion. I mean, the overwhelming uh, response is to say we must care for older people better. We must make sure we protect them in their old care institutions. We must sure that they get the very best possible social care. Um, so, and I think there is, this is a deeply rooted um, ethic within our society, which many people can trace to the Judeo-Christian roots of our society. Mm. And I have to say, as I said in a previous episode, I've been hugely encouraged to see, well, more so in the first lockdown, but, it, you know, that there was widespread kind of social buy-in across the age and previously political spectrum that actually, you know, my generation should make sweeping sacrifices in a lockdown to partly to 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 care for and protect our more vulnerable elders, which is not something I necessarily would have predicted pre-COVID. Yeah, I mean, I would just like to come back, uh, and I'm afraid it's a rather bleak thought, but I would just like to come back to this analogy with the 39 war and its, and its devastating economic consequences. Just suppose, you know, we're having this conversation in six months' time. Uh, sadly, it appears that there are various problems with the vaccines and they're not working half as well as we'd hoped. Uh, the economy continues to tank, massive unemployment, the virus is, is rising again, the government is talking about another lockdown. Um, you know, we, we would have to recognise that um, this is potentially having devastating, long-lasting consequences, um, and, and that many, um, you know, rich... Western countries could find themselves saddled with enormous debts uh, as as a consequence of of the pandemic. And of course, you know, we look across to China and the small number of economies that have managed to lock down effectively, and they their economies are booming and and will continue to do so. So, I I, I do see this as 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 an enormous threat to Western liberal democratic. Um, societies and, and as much as anything it's a reason to pray that um, God will have mercy on our countries and our economies and uh, and that the vaccines will in fact be successful. Absolutely I, sp I spent a little bit of time last week looking at some of the economic forecasts um, which is really quite bleak um, so the UK GDP collapsed by 25% from February to April and has since bounced back a bit, but is still 9% below what it was pre-COVID. Um, and the central forecast from the independent government body that does this is is for over the whole of 2020, the GDP will fall by 12%, which is just an astronomical amount. You know, I mean, previously we would be tearing our hair out at a recession of 05 or 1%. And this is, you know, 12 times more significant. Um Unemployment is expected to peak at 12% by the end of the year, despite the furlough scheme, which has already cost us more than £40 billion. Um, there's, there, it's important not to be glib about the, the cost. It's, this does sound like a string of numbers and stats, but actually what it really means is, as you say, future taxpayers will have to be paying back the bill 
and in the meantime there'll be small businesses and owner business owners who will be completely have their livelihoods destroyed there'll be people who are thrown into uh, unemployment who have had steady jobs for decades you know this is a salary cuts this this is real stuff and it really hurts yes and again you know this is where the analogy with wartime is is, is very telling because although that's all true there are also a very significant number of people who are having quotes a, a good war you know they they are safe and home in their in their houses they're working full time they're seeing their businesses online businesses or online professions or whatever it is thriving uh, they're doing very well thank you and i suspect you know in the recovery phase there is going to be much greater awareness of the need for taxation you know to increase taxation in in those middle classes the professional people who who's, who have escaped uh, largely um, that I personally think there is going to be a real price for a, a greater recognition of the need for redistribution and and I hope and pray there is a kind of generosity about those who've done very well thank you and and a recognition of the need to support others who haven't and just last I might also add another person we could look at is businesses like Amazon not known for their generosity in paying the le- the UK tax they're already legally obliged to pay but another company which are also having a good COVID and absolutely booming with this rise in e-commerce and online shopping. And just lastly then, before we wrap up this podcast on, on the second lockdown, one other issue we haven't yet discussed is is separate from the question of health and the economy is is the impact on on church um here in the uk this the lockdown has meant that the government has banned churches from holding public worship in person which has been which had been happening with masks and social distancing for the last few months um and there's i think again unlike the first time round, there's been quite much more pushback from bishops including the church of england the catholic church and various other leaders who have written to the government saying this isn't fair, this isn't right, we can carry on meeting in person safely. It's 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 not an optional leisure activity like going to the cinema. This is a this is a core functioning part of our society that can't be just turned off again. Yes, it's a fascinating um issue, isn't it? And and I for one would want to argue very strongly that places of worship um are are, are an essential underpinning of our society. I I think there's quite a lot of sadness. I mean, among Christians, I think that at the first pandemic, the the, the voices of Christian leaders putting the centrality of of prayer, of spiritual support and concern, you know, we didn't hear a lot of those voices. Um, the the public discourse was dominated by medics and by the the science, and I think, you know, we people of faith need to join together and argue very strongly that, that these are the very underpinnings of our society. Uh, and of course, you know, this, the, the census surveys and so on support this, because if you look at the percentage of our society and our community who are explicitly say they have no religion, um, they represent a minority. Uh, a significant minor- majority of the, of the community would uh, express adherence to one or other of the great faiths so uh, of which of course Christianity is very much the biggest in the UK so I think 
you know, just on democratic grounds, we can say that for many people in our society, Christianity and their, their Christian faith, their religious faith is extremely important. And that maintaining uh, communal worship with all the appropriate precautions, it should be seen as as essential as other essential parts like construction or or other activities which are going on in our society. I have to say, I feel quite conflicted on this one. I obviously share, as a Christian, your conviction that that communal worship is is not an optional extra and it's not a leisure activity. But I think while you're right that those who explicitly tick the non-religious box on the census are a minority, they're a growing minority, what is true is that those who attend services of worship on a regular basis, which in polling terms means only once a month, uh, are a minority and quite a large one. Um, you know, so I think in the last census, I think something like 50, 59% of people said they were Christians. But the best guess we have at the moment, I think, of people who actually attend church at least once a month is something more like 10% at max. So I think what is what I find difficult about this is that while I agree personally that faith should should be seen more akin to something like schools and education, which has been kept open this time around because it's deemed as important and should not be equated to cinemas and restaurants, that is a contested point. For example, you know, the humanist society would strongly resist the idea that attending a religious service is anything more than a hobby equivalent to going to a football game. And I think can the state, which is, you know, holding the ring for all these competing narratives and worldviews can it be seen to privilege the religious worldview by agreeing with christians and others and saying you know what your pastime which we don't take a position on as a government we're going to agree in this instance is more important than a humanist going to see their friends um around a around a coffee in a coffee shop Yes, I mean, fair, fair point. And this is, this is a, an argument which goes to the heart of what kind of a liberal society we believe in. There are different models. Um, and again, this would be an interesting topic for in the future, different understandings of, of, um, of how liberalism works. I would argue strongly, yes, we're not looking for a privileged position. We're not, we're not asking to be treated specially, but we are being asked to be treated fairly. Um, and th- that's the debate. Um, how, how in a uh, pluralistic society with contested uh, claims, how do we find a way of living together with generosity? The state pays for Christian schools, it pays for Muslim schools, it pays for Jewish schools, and um, that's an example of the generosity of the state uh, because it 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 sees the importance of these things for for the good of all for the common good. Hmm. Well, that's a debate. I think that's going to run and run throughout this second lockdown. Um, certainly, there have been more representations made over the last few days to government, and um, maybe they maybe they will change their minds or not. But we'll have to see on that one. Um, certainly, speaking personally, my church never managed to reopen in person anyway in the in the interim between the first and second lockdown so we're still plugging away on zoom as i'm sure many other churches and and places of worship are but yeah we'll pray that that changes soon good okay well thanks very much i think maybe it's time to call it a day and i look forward to having this chat with you again next time thanks john speak soon That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. 
It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which is a treasure trove of resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we talk about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T-S-Wyatt on Twitter. And for some of my journalism, head to tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic for us to explore, or a news development you think we should respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Mm-hmm.